Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing to ideologically transform the state's colleges by altering policies and course content. His efforts include policies like the Stop Woke Act, which bans instructors from advocating certain ideas, and most recently, the appointment of new trustees at New College of Florida, who plan to radically change the nature of this school. Critics have accused DeSantis of stifling academic freedom in the state's higher education system. How should we evaluate DeSantis's initiatives? Do they constitute an infringement of academic freedom? What role should the state government play in public institutions of higher learning? Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Sam Weaver. I'm a junior fellow at ARI, and with me today is Ben Baer, fellow and director of content. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sam. So we're going to talk today about several different initiatives that DeSantis has taken or is attempting to pass that pertain to the higher education system in the state of Florida. I think we should start by saying a little bit about what the the issue is in general terms, what he's uh, trying to do, what the problem he's he's pointing to uh, is. So he's he says when he talks about these policies that his goal is to improve Florida's universities and to fix some of the problems that are in them. And in particular, he talks a lot about the problem of ideological uniformity, the idea that there's a, a a sort of monoculture in the universities where uh, orthodoxies have formed around certain points of view. There's very little diversity of opinion among the faculty and and the staff at these universities. Um, and he wants to he wants to change that. He says in the state of Florida. And I, I mean, I think for starters, I think this is a real problem that academia has, uh, particularly in the humanities, uh, where there are. Orthodoxies around certain points of view in a lot of subjects. Uh, there's not as much uh, diversity of of thought as you would want to see, um, and it this can be a create a sort of monolithic or stifling environment in some of the uh, some some universities and departments. Uh, and in a recent speech talking about this issue. DeSantis really singled out one kind of new aspect or, or an aspect that's really recently grown of the way that uh, universities operate, which is the rise of uh, DEI bureaucracies, diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies, which have grown a lot in recent years in, in many universities. Uh, and these, the, sorry, Ben, did you want to say something about those? All right. I'll keep going. Sure. Uh, so, so these uh, DEI bureaucracies, these are part of the university administration. Uh, so they're not, they're not professors, they're not faculty, they're part of the administrative system of the university. And the stated goal, the stated intent behind the creation of these is, is typically put as we want to create a more welcoming, accepting environment. We want to combat bigotry and discrimination on campus. Uh, but in practice, what these bureaucracies often involve are the, the creation of a, a lot of different departments, uh, multicultural departments, departments of uh, design for, to promote the interests of specific ethnic groups or marginalized minority groups, um, and that these departments tend to promote a very particular conception of what diversity, equity, and inclusion are. That really pertains to a particular ideology that uh, is, has become a, a fixture of certain parts of American life. It, some people call it the 
wokeism or critical race theory is related to this. So it's a very particular view that these departments endorse of what diversity, equity, and inclusion involve. And these DEI bureaucracies often have started uh, in pushing or requiring faculty or job candidates to sign statements for DEI, affirming agreement with particular aspects of this ideology about diversity. And uh, some of them have even uh, disciplined professors for uh, certain offenses against diversity, equity and, equity, and inclusion that they commit in their classes, including a lot of things that uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of reasonable people would not really consider instances of bigotry, but just cases of instruction that someone took offense to. Uh, ben, did you want to say more about the DEI? Yeah, there's a lot to say about it, and we're not going to be able to, I mean, we could do a whole separate show just, I think, on the problems of DEI, but it is worth flagging up front uh, just how big of a problem it is that this is what's getting entrenched in the bureaucracies of our university. I mean, I would say that the biggest problem is uh, the last thing that you were talking about, Sam, the way that it encourages ideological conformity. Uh, that's an, that's a, a value when entrenched at a university is antithetical to a university's purpose, which is education. And I think you, you saw this in really stark terms recently at Hamlin University, when notably it was the professor who was being, just as you were mentioning, uh, being punished uh, for having had the gall to show a picture of Muhammad in art history class uh, in a way that wasn't even disrespectful uh, of the prophet or of the religion that he stood for, but was using it as an example in, uh, in art history, the portrayal of a certain religious ideology. So there it was precisely the, the DEI administrators who took action against this professor. And it was actually the professors who came uh, to this person's defense. So you see that uh, really uh, opposing core values of uh, an, of a higher education, which which you know a liberal education should expose people to a range of viewpoints uh, that shouldn't censor any aspects of history. And so this is, I think, the chief the chief sin, if you want to use that kind of language of of the DEI bureaucracy. And it's the same kind of problem that you see with this broader woke culture. Um, just to throw a few more things uh, out there about what's problematic. One is that, I mean, as I understand, the, the woke ideology that animates DEI administrators, uh, which they characterize as quote unquote anti-racist, I think is actually racist. I think that when you basically create an industry of showing how members of minorities are inescapably victims of systems of oppression uh, and you are that's racist not for the kind of conservative reasons that are often given that it's racism in reverse because it's discriminating discriminating against white people although there's an element of truth again uh, about that it's it's racist in the old-fashioned sense of seeing members of minorities as these helpless victims who can't help themselves, who have no agency, who have no volition, no ability to rise above uh, structures, uh, no minds of their own to uh, speak up for themselves. And they have to be spoon fed and treated as victims and made the subject of study and uh, kind of uh, sacred cows for everyone else. I see that as essentially racism 
uh, in the old fashioned, they are a member of a of a inferior race kind of racism, which is which is awful and unjust and irrational. Uh, and it's not just any old irrationality. It's not just any old controversial position. Uh, it's 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 done under the guise of what I think is in effect a new kind of religion. It's a dogma that is that has all the trappings of religion. And if you read John McWhorter's recent book, Woke Racism, uh, he catalogs this in detail. I recently wrote a, an article about McWhorter's book. Uh, it's got a view of original sin where everyone's seen as guilty based on the sins of their ancestors. It's got a catechism that you have to adhere to. We've got to worry about converts. We've got to worry about uh, basically atoning for our sins. So it's, this is the, of all the kinds of dogmas you could entrench in a university administration where that's the uniformity that's being encouraged. I mean, that's about as bad as it can get, especially because if we're talking about state run education, then there's a church state issue there. It, it's all the same reasons why we need separation of church and state. We also need separation of, uh, of intellectual dogma and state. And I think that's what we're having here. And I think, Sam, that connects to the next issue that you wanted to talk about, the, 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 the relevant difference here between private and public institutions. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so if we were talking about private universities, it, that did, and now part of the issue today is that even private universities are uh, often taking a lot of uh, taxpayer money. But putting that aside for the moment, if we were talking about private universities that sold education on a, on a market, uh, they could construct their curriculum, their administration, how they wish. They could implement whatever sort of ideas they want. They could teach whatever content they chose in a course. They could require their students or their faculty to affirm agreement with a particular ideology or a particular religion. I mean, as we see with sometimes with religious universities, they teach a particular religion, like a, a Catholic university teaches Catholicism, and they might require their professors to affirm that they are Catholics. And re regardless of whether we, you know, think that that's right or, or wrong, a rational or an irrational decision, if it's a private university, then there's no political issue to come up there. It, we're free to choose whether or not we associate with that university, whether we want to fund it, whether we want to use their services, pay them for anything. If they want to have their staff affirm a particular viewpoint, a particular religious ideology, that's their business if they're a private university. But the problem is that what we're talking about here uh, in the, the public universities of the state of Florida are public universities. They're universities that are funded by taxes. So every taxpayer of the state of Florida is required to fund these universities. They are, they are, they don't have a choice in the matter. They are funding the University of Florida, Florida State University, all, all these public colleges in the state of Florida. And there, there's a real issue, uh, a real church and state issue. Uh, but I think it's, it's a broader issue than just organized religion. It's, a, it's an issue of ideas and state. It's an issue of saying that you, as a taxpayer, are going to be forced to fund certain ideas, ideas with which you may not, in fact, agree. And that's part of the issue, you know, going back to the, the founding fathers and like 
the problem of establishing a, a state church is that some people might not agree with that church, but they're being forced to fund its operations. Uh, so we're going to talk a, a fair amount about some of what Ayn Rand had to say about the issue of public universities. And so I, at this point, I, I want to read a quote uh, from her essay, Fairness Doctrine for Education, which we'll talk a, a lot about today. And Ayn Rand said, the government has no right to set itself up as the arbiter of ideas, and therefore its establishments, the public and semi-public schools, have no right to teach a single viewpoint, excluding all others. They have no right to serve the beliefs of any one group of citizens, leaving others ignored and silenced. It is viciously wrong to force an individual to pay for the teaching of ideas diametrically opposed to his own. It is a profound violation of his rights. The violation becomes monstrous if his ideas are excluded from such public teaching. This means that he is forced to pay for the propagation of that which he regards as false and evil and for the suppression of that which he regards as true and good. And so I, I agree totally with what Ayn Rand says here. And to the extent that this is the state of affairs in our public universities, to the extent that our public universities aren't just using the money that we're forced to pay to fund ideas that we might not agree with, but, but using it to fund one set of ideas to the exclusion of opposing views, there's something really wrong. And there's a problem that we really need to take seriously and try to solve. So as I mentioned, this quote came from an article Ayn Rand wrote called Fairness Doctrine for Education. And we'll be talking uh, today about the implications of this article and the idea that Ayn Rand endorses in it for the, uh, the issue of the particular proposals that DeSantis has made in Florida. Um, but just to be clear about, first about what she's advocating in this article, what is the idea that she's laying out? Uh, first, it, it's important to, note that her view and, and ours is that really the government should not be involved in education at all. The government should not run any schools. It should not be in the business of determining what schools are allowed to operate, what they're allowed to teach. It should be separate from education in the same way that it's separate from church. So a separation of education and state in the same way, and in fact, for the same reason as a separation of church and state. Uh, so that's our view of what is the ideal. But this article and some of what we'll talk about today has to do with what is the, the, the best way of operating or the least unjust way of operating in a context where there are public universities and you know, we know they're not going away anytime soon. So what is the, the least unjust way of having a system like that? And you can see some of that perspective already in the quote we read where she says, this is unjust if people are forced to pay for ideas that they don't agree with, but it becomes monstrous if their own ideas are also excluded. So this is an issue of what is the, what is the best path in a system that ultimately we think that shouldn't exist at all. Yeah, two, two things to say about that, Sam. One is that I don't think you could come up with a better illustration of what's wrong with public education than the kind of, uh, shenanigans that we're seeing in universities today with regard to something like DEI. I mean, you can probably come up with equally good <laughs> examples with other, exa with other topics, but uh, this is about as good of an example as it gets, because what you have is 
an ideology that is not even, I don't think it's widely shared by the public. It's, it's popular within a certain intellectual class, but it's coming to dominate institutions that are paid for by the general public. Uh, and even though the general public probably disagrees with it. So you have large numbers of people being forced to support ideas that they disagree with and not being given any kind of uh, contrary voice uh, in a place of extreme cultural significance. That is our system of higher education. And it's especially salient in a system where, I mean, notice that in that passage, she says something about both public and semi-public. Uh, it's wrong to do this. And here, I think what she has in mind is the fact that increasingly, uh, even the universities that are private universities, you had said rightly that if it's a real private university, they should have the right to do whatever they want with, uh, with, their, with their money and with their curriculum. But the fact is that most so-called private universities these days are, are funded in, in large part by federal student loans, which gives the government a big hand in what goes on there. I still think you need to treat private and public universities differently uh, until it, the government actually starts directly dictating how the curriculum of private schools is run. But uh, yeah, as, especially for the public schools, this is about as, as good of an example you could give of what's wrong with the idea of government being in the business of ideas. Because no matter what doctrine it decides to teach, it's, it, because we live in a pluralistic society where people differ with each other, it, the same problem is going to happen one way or another. We'll get into this when we look at some of DeSantis's proposals. But if you had uh, an anti-DEI uh, curriculum imposed by government, then uh, there would that would be misrepresenting the people in society who do believe in it, who are also paying taxes. Um, the other reason why this is important to discuss is that, I mean, it's Ayn Rand's view, at least, that ideas are what move the world. Uh, she has the view that philosophy moves history. And she, she often makes the point that if you want to change a culture, you need to change its fundamental philosophy. Uh, and this is something that it, we really care about at the Ayn Rand Institute because we don't comment on the nitty gritty of uh, policy so much as we talk about the ideas behind policies. And that's because we have the conviction that if we want to change the culture, we need to change the ideas. And that often includes campaigns to influence what's going on in higher education, where a lot of students get their ideas from. So universities are they're a crucial locus for cultural change. And so when you have a university system that's dominated by the government, that cuts off an important route for cultural change, uh, especially to the extent that the curriculum and the staff are uh, dominated by a single ideology. So that's why it's important that she makes this proposal that there needs to be some kind of transitional measure, recognizing the fact that uh, that universities system is largely run by the government. It shouldn't be, but it is. And given the fact that it is, we need to think about how can we how can we reform it in a way that pushes us closer uh, to the kind of system that we should have, which is a system where education is private, where where uh, where there's freedom. So yeah, Sam, let's take a look at what she actually proposes for how this could be done with the system as we currently have it. Sure. Yeah, so this idea of a fairness doctrine for education, Ayn Rand is advancing as a, as a temporary measure uh, to kind of put a pause on the move towards a, a, the total takeover of the universities by a, a monolithic viewpoint. 
Um, and she's drawing on the, the Fairness Doctrine, which was originally a, an FCC, Federal Communication Commission, policy that applied to television and airwaves. And, uh, and one thing to note about this is that this policy was based on a premise, a false premise, and a premise she criticized elsewhere, uh, that the airwaves are public property. Um, but on this premise, on the premise that airwaves are owned by the public and merely licensed to television and radio stations, the FCC required that broadcasters present contrasting sides of controversial issues of public importance. So the idea was that if there was a, a debate that was going on about abortion, you would need to have people representing both the pro-abortion and anti-abortion sides on the TV show you, or on your TV station. You need to give hearing to both sides of the debate. This policy isn't really, is, is not in existence anymore. And partly it's sort of made obsolete by the, the existence of the internet and that there's no, not nearly as much just limited airwave space. But this policy was in, in effect at the time that Ayn Rand wrote this article. And she took it as, uh, as an idea that it has a lot of problems. Uh, in fact, she, she calls it a, a messy little makeshift of the mixed economy. She didn't think this was a good doctrine. She didn't think this was the way that airwaves should actually be run or should operate. And she didn't think this was the way that you know, universities should ultimately be made to operate because she didn't think there should be public universities. But her argument is that in the context of a system where the government in the name of the public owns the universities, this is a good uh, doctrine to temporarily put in to prevent the, uh, the the takeover or the monopolization of the universities by a particular viewpoint. And so here's, here's her argument for it. She says, if the public allegedly owns universities as it allegedly owns the airwaves, then for all the same reasons, no specific ideology can be permitted to hold a monopoly in any department of any public or semi-public universities. In all such institutions, every significant viewpoint must be given representation. So this is the, the basic proposal that you need to give representation to all the significant viewpoints within, the within each department of a public or semi-public university. And now, just to be clear on how she, she qualifies this, an, another quote from the article, she says, it would not achieve actual fairness, impartiality, or objectivity, but it would act as a temporary impediment to intellectual monopolies, a retarder of the establishment's takeover, a breach in the mental lethargy of the status quo, and occasionally an opening for a brilliant dissenter who would know how to make it count. So this is her reason for proposing this as a, as a temporary measure to fight back against the monopolization in the, in the universities. And we'll have more to say about how she thought this should actually be implemented, how it should actually take effect, and how this relates to what DeSantis is doing in Florida. Uh, but first, I think, Ben, you wanted to say some more about the issue of fairness. Ben, I think you're Yeah, right. I think it's really important that she stresses that the fairness doctrine even as she's advocating it for uh, public education, would not actually achieve fairness. I mean, she's, oh, she's explicit about that, that um, as long as you have a system where some people are being forced to pay for ideas, 
uh, where government is in charge of those ideas and those people who give the money are not, that's unfair. Uh, there's no way that you could possibly replicate the actual diversity of ideas that exists in a society in microcosm in a university. I mean, she's, I, I imagine she's, she's probably thinking if, if some kind of system like this goes into effect, uh, you'll get maybe more conservatives in academia and it won't be all leftists. You probably still won't get too many objectivists. And um, that's you know what she would really like to see. So it's still not going to be fair, but there are more and less fair. Uh, there are more and less unfair ways to do this. You can be more unfair. You can be less unfair. She's saying this would be less unfair in effect. Uh, and most importantly, there are ways that would be more or less likely uh, to transition away from the very system that she's opposed to. If if you have a, a monopoly where the ideology that's in charge is in support of that very monopoly, because they think there should be this kind of public school system, which is the position of the left usually, uh, or traditionally, then uh, it's going to reinforce itself. Whereas if you have different ideas being debated within that very uh, establishment, including for example, different ideas about how education it itself should be funded and governed, well, that's more likely uh, to cause people to rethink the system. And so uh, one of the things that I think is important to talk about this topic today is that I, mean, I if you had asked me 10 years ago if there was ever a significant chance that the that in the next 10 years, the, there, would, there would be an opportunity to, in effect, dethrone the, the left-wing intelligentsia from their monopolistic control of the university, I would say, no, it's crazy. They've, got, they've established themselves so well in their own little fiefdom, and they've insulated it from change in so many ways that I, I can't see it ending soon. But we're starting to see signs uh, in our political culture that, no, there is a chance to change it. There is political will uh, to reform uh, higher education uh, along with, uh, I think, public education generally. And in part, I think it's because the, the, the wokeism, the, the form of left-wing racialist tribalism, uh, along with other forms of tribalism that have come to dominate the academy, I think have become so absurd on so many levels that so many, and in ways that so many people can see uh, including many people on the traditional left, that there is room for change. There is an opportunity for change. And I think you saw this, for example, with the Hamlin University controversy just a few weeks ago, because there you had, uh, you had mainstream left of center institutions speaking out against what was perpetrated against that professor at that university, including uh, the New York Times and, and many professors who said, this is, this is a bridge too far so there is real political opportunity here uh, to start to reform the system in a, in a more uh, healthy, in a, in a healthier, more freedom respecting direction. But <laughs> if, if that's true, then it's crucial that the political will is, has to be channeled in the right direction. The changes and the reforms that you're proposing have to be such that you really, they really are going to make it less likely that this monopoly will perpetuate itself. And the big question that we need to talk about still today is whether that's actually what DeSantis is doing. Sure, so I think we should get into some of the particular measures that he's adopted or is attempting to adopt. And I, I'd like to start with some where I think that there, there are promising things to say about them. 
Uh, so one particular action that he's trying to get done in the, the next legislative session is a, a pretty total defunding of the DEI bureaucracies in the, in the state university system. Um, and I think this is the, the one where I have the, I think this is pretty clearly a good thing to do. These bureaucracies yeah, are not necessary. They, they, a lot of them have grown beyond any proportion that you could imagine being necessary to actually combat whatever form of actual racism or prejudice occurs on the university campuses. And what their main function seems to be is promoting or even enforcing uh, certain views on race and gender and other kind of social issues as an orthodoxy. I mean, we look at things like the requirement of faculty members to sign diversity pledges that al express uh, assent to a certain view of diversity, a certain kind of woke ideology view of this. So this is a pretty clear cut case where there's a whole institution within the universities that is uh, existing to promote one set of ideas, one ideology. Uh, there's not a sort of counterbalancing uh, group that's promoting a different view that has the same level of power within the university. And what's more, this isn't even really an academic department. It's part of the administration and it's actually exerting in some cases control over how the academic departments are able to do their work. So there's not even a question of like, are, in, in getting rid of these departments, are you kind of suppressing the ability of professors to teach according to their knowledge? In, in fact, you're probably liberating professors by by defunding these departments. Uh, so I think there's really uh, a really, really good case that you should at the very minimum apply really heavy scrutiny to what these departments are actually doing and defund a lot of their activities. Uh, now, I there's no actual bill of what DeSantis is doing that's available to the public yet, so I don't know exactly what his plan is, but the idea of what he's doing so far is we want to see an account of what they're spending, these universities are spending their money on in terms of the DEI bureaucracies, and we're going to defund a lot of this. I think that's that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, this is, this is an example where I would also say uh, there's increasing recognition across the culture that there's a problem. At first, there's increasing recognition that there's a problem with university administrations generally, not just with DEI uh, bureaucracies, that, that university level administrators are uh, they're bloated. There's all kinds of offices that they create for themselves. Uh, it, it, it's highly derivative from any kind of educational function, and it's also sapping resources from actually hiring professors. Uh, and it's part of the reason why it's harder to make a living as a professor. I should know. I eventually quit. But um, the other thing is that I made the point before that uh, there's, a, there's a really apt analogy that you can draw between woke ideology and religion. And here you see that in spades, because if there is a grand inquisitor of the woke movement, it usually comes in the form of an administrator at a university who, and, and they sometimes engage in the equivalent of, of actual kinds of inquisition and witch hunts. So uh, yeah, this is, I think, a clear case where there's an obvious reform to make at the state level, at, at the level of funding. And I think that's something like what DeSantis wants to do. Well, yeah, but it, we'll have to wait to see more details. But there's something else that he wants to do where I think that we can say something positive about Sam, and that's 
the new college of Florida. Yeah. So the, the new college of Florida is this very small liberal arts school in, uh, in Sarasota, Florida, a uh, very small enrollment. And, uh, it's, it's has a reputation for being sort of a, uh, progressive or left-wing monoculture. Um, this, the board of this public college is appointed by the governor and confirmed by the state legislature. And DeSantis recently a, appointed a new slate of trustees who will join the existing board, have joined the existing board. Uh, and he appointed six new trustees who are typically, they're seen as conservatives, I think for good reason. And they are talking about how they want to make some pretty significant changes to the college moving it in a new and different direction. Uh, and, and here I think there's a, there's a real opportunity for something good to come out of this, for something good to be done here. I mean, this is a small college that uh, it's been trending downward in recent years. I mean, if you look at a lot of the, the measures of success, uh, how the graduation rate, how many students apply to it, how much money the students are making when they graduate, these kind of measures have really been trending in a negative direction for New College. And this has not been a secret in Florida at all. The, I mean, the state government has long been discussing whether to dissolve the college or whether to absorb it into one of the, the larger state universities. Uh, and DeSantis has decided, I think, that instead of doing that, instead of just getting rid of this college, to try something new here, to try to give it a chance to go in a new direction and sort of rehabilitate as a new and different school that can, uh, that, that can provide a good service to students. And in, in fact, this, is, this college is supposed to be the, the honors college, the most prestigious college in the, the Florida public system. It's really not been that uh, at all recently, um, but there's an opportunity here to try to return it to the, the standard that it is supposed to be held to. Uh, and I think it's fully, you know, it, it's fully reasonable to say, you know, we have this college, it's not working on the one hand. On the other hand, it's also has a real reputation for being intellectually monolithic, that it's a place where everybody believes the same thing. Everybody accepts the same set of ideas. There's discussion that there's a, the, the DEI bureaucracy at this college has been particularly powerful. There's a lot of people who I think are, are afraid to disagree from the, the consensus that is sort of dominating this college. And I think part of what DeSantis and these new board members are talking about is we want to change this school to make it a place with a lot of intellectual diversity, with a lot of, you know, discussion and debate and a lot of different ideas and viewpoints taught and discussed. And if that's really what they want to do, then that as far you know that's a good thing that's a good idea for what to do with this college is a pretty much a failing state college anyway take it and bring in a try to create a new culture where the and the, the idea it's not there's not a lot of specificity in and exactly what the new program would look like what the new academic model would look like there's discussion of moving towards more of a classical model, having a lot more teaching of like the great books and the, the classic thinkers of the liberal tradition. And that could be a good thing for a, for a college like this. And so if the trustees really intend to create a, a, a school that is more academically rigorous, 
uh, teaches better content, has a better quality, and is going to have more intellectual diversity, I think that would be a positive step. We still don't know exactly what they're going to do, but this is uh, this is an idea that on on its face could uh, could lead in a positive direction. I think. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity here to apply this kind of fairness doctrine to future hiring decisions, to certain kinds of curriculum decisions that that something like the board of trustees would have a role in. I think professors should still get to be the ones to decide how to teach their class. Uh, but which professors get hired is something that's up to the board. So uh, at least at some level. So there's an op there's a real opportunity here and it could be used for good purposes. The big question is how they how are they going to do it? And I think there are there's a lot to criticize still about what DeSantis is up to. We haven't gotten to that yet, but I promise you that we have criticisms coming. Um, but there's at least uh, there, there's an opportunity to do something good here. The question is whether they will. Now, we should also mention, Sam, that there have been people who've criticized uh, this move along with other uh, aspects of DeSantis's policies, which, which criticisms are different from ours. I don't think all the criticisms are equally good. So let's, let's at least briefly talk about some of the criticisms that have been registered that I don't think are that great before we get to the ones that I think are actually better. Yeah. Uh, so there's an idea that a lot of critics have raised that this appointment of new trustees to the board of new college is a hostile takeover of this college. And I think the idea is that he's, he's targeting this college, which has a reputation again, for being kind of a left-wing place and trying to just take it over for his view and, and transform it and sort of take it away from the people who were there, who were running it or the, the, what the students and faculty would like for it to be. Now, I think it's entirely possible that there's a political motivation behind DeSantis's decisions here. I mean, he has, he's a politician, he has big time political ambitions, he has presidential ambitions. Um, and, you know, we'll talk some more about I, some, some later, I think, but I mean, there's reason to think that DeSantis might have chosen this school, for example, because it's a sort of a left-wing enclave within the Florida university system and, and that he has a you know, a political desire to sort of break break apart the left wing enclave and make it more more conservative or more uh, amenable to his views, and uh, that there he might be able to you know score political points this way, get support uh, in a Republican primary uh, by doing this. And if his plan is to take this left wing. Uh, orthodoxy and replace it with a right-wing orthodoxy and turn this into like a, a school that teaches conservatism, Christianity, has a new sort of monoculture within it of conservative Christianity, then that would be bad. And that would be just taking something that was problematic in one way and uh, basically recreating the same problem, but with different particular uh, ideological content. Um, so if, if that is the case, I don't think we know yet if that's going to happen, that would be a, a, a fair criticism if that's what he was going to do. But I think these critics often assume that there is some kind of right to preserve this college in its existing form as this kind of liberal hippie cultural enclave within the, within the state university system of Florida. And that just can't be the case for reasons we've already talked about if it's going to be a government run college. If you wanted to create a private college 
and have it be this, this place of, with a particular intellectual culture, that's fine. But you can't require the state government to fund a school and then also have it be exactly the way you want it and totally immune to any changes or any form of intellectual diversity. So to the extent that that is what the criticism is about, it's not, it, it, it's not and it can't be a valid criticism. Yeah, for sure, especially because I mean, the idea that this is some kind of hostile takeover is goes against the simple fact that it's the governor's legal right to make these changes. There's there's nothing surreptitious here. There's there's no it's all out in the open go according to the procedures that are established. And he also pretty clearly has the support of the voters. So if your whole case for the existence of public education is that public education is for the sake of creating de democratic citizens and that a democratic control of the education system mandates a public system, then it's, it's really the height of hypocrisy to stare these facts in the face and say, for some reason, they don't have the right to do it. You, you have to end up having a kind of view of there should be platonic philosopher kings to whom we should all submit ourselves uh, for the sake of whatever esoteric studies they want to engage in, uh, even when it means they are ruling over us. That's what the opposition to this comes off sounding like, uh, advocacy of philosopher kings. Now, I don't myself think that the public education should be uh, something that's democratically run. I don't think there should be public education. Uh, but by the standards that the left relies on, to argue in favor of it, as long as it's going to exist, well, that's what standards will govern it, is, is the, the will of the voters. And it's pretty clear the voters are on the side of DeSantis here. Now, that still doesn't mean um, that what he's going to do with it is right. Uh, but we'll get to that soon. There's one other thing, though, that we should talk about, Sam, and that's the argument that some of the critics of DeSantis are giving that uh, what he's proposing is some kind of violation of, quote unquote, academic freedom. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is asserted as an ob objection to really all of DeSantis's attempts to make changes to uh, the public colleges in the state of Florida. It's the idea that, look, professors, faculty, they have a right of academic freedom, a right to decide what they're going to teach, what they're going to do in their classes. Uh, and the, the state government has to be hands off and respect that right. And I think we'll have things to say about attempts in the state government to really dictate course content. We're not coming out in favor of that. We'll say more in a minute. But what, what can we say about this idea that there's such a thing as a right to academic freedom that professors at public universities possess? Just that there isn't one. Um, academic freedom is in practice the idea you have a right to a job because you're a professor and that you have the right to maintain it without demonstrating any actual value of what it is you're producing to your employers, which in this case means the taxpayers. I think there are rights at stake in this question, and we're going to talk about those very shortly, but uh, academic freedom is in essence the creation, the, it's the construct of a, of a mixed economy where you, you suppose that there's an academic class and that with membership in that class, you're afforded certain rights. Uh, but uh, when it's a system that is by its nature 
already violating the rights of the people whose funds it's being are being used to support ideas they disagree with, well, there can be no right to violate rights. Uh, and so I think that criti that criticism of what DeSantis is talking about is is a non-starter. But Sam, let's let's now get to what we think are actually some problems with what he's proposing. And for those those of you who've been following who are big DeSantis fans, uh, here's where we will start to disappoint you. Yeah, uh, it's not all good. Uh, I mean, for one thing, let's start with New College. Uh, as I mentioned, it's not entirely clear what's going to happen next. There are some promising statements in favor of diversity of thought that we're hearing from DeSantis and from the new trustees. Uh, there are also some statements, though, that are somewhat more troubling. Uh, so DeSantis's chief of staff, chief of staff, uh, James Uthmeyer, uh, said it is our hope that New College of Florida will become Florida's classical college, more along the lines of a Hillsdale of the South. So Hillsdale College is is a private school, and it's an explicitly Christian school that is it's pretty and it's pretty open about being conservative in its political orientation. And and to the extent that the idea here is to again to take this kind of progressive monoculture and turn it into a conservative monoculture, particularly if religion and Christianity get involved, that would obviously be completely inappropriate for a public college. And it would really, again, be taking the same, keeping the same problem, just changing the content of the views that are a monopoly in that institution. Um, and, you know, I don't know what to make of this, but one concerning moment in the, the recent kind of board of trustees meeting with this new set was that one of the trustees was making a really big deal about how we need to have a prayer to open the meeting of the board of trustees and it has to be a particular kind of prayer and there was some back and forth over this that could be nothing but it it indicates you know maybe there's a more religious direction that these trustees have in mind also on the subject of the the new trustees i think there should be a question as to why uh one of the trustees in particular was chosen uh, so one of the new trustees is Christopher Rufo, uh, who has been also one of the most vocal spokesmen for the kind of the new six of the trustees. Uh, the other ones, most of them are people who have careers in academia, know something about higher education, have real qualifications in that field. Rufo, he's more of an activist. He doesn't really have credentials in education, doesn't really have the experience that you would expect for a college trustee. And he's known for being kind of a, a bomb-throwing conservative activist, uh, leading campaigns against critical race theory, against Disney, uh, not somebody with a, a lot of educational knowledge. Uh, so that's something that raises a question for me as what is the intent with this college? Is it to create a new kind of a new school with high standards and intellectual diversity? Or is there something more activist that DeSantis has in mind with the the and the choice of Rufo as a trustee is something that at least shades in the direction of the latter. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's relevant that he's appointed a variety of people to this board of trustees. And so Rufo isn't the only one in charge, but you do have to take all of this in the context of the fact that the conservative movement generally of which many of these trustees are members is moving itself in the direction of a new form of collectivism. It's that there are many conservatives these days consider themselves nationalists. 
I said that there was an opportunity to change things for the better here, but public will uh, in the face of the problems of egalitarianism and leftism in universities is easily manipulated in favor of just another kind of collectivism. And one of the passages uh, that uh, we didn't read for you from that, that essay, Fairness Doctrine for Education, talks about, uh, she, she calls out the left-wing Marcusians, the uh, followers of Herbert Marcuse, who openly proposed to drive all dissenters off the university faculties. Uh, Marcuse was one of the progenitors of the new left and had the view that you it, you achieve cultural change by taking over institutions. Interesting, interestingly, Rufo's studied Marcuse and he openly admits to having studied him uh, for the purpose of learning the left's tactics. And I think you have to take that as a serious problem that if they really are trying to set up just a new Hillsdale, but one that's sponsored by the government, uh, then they're not trying to push us in a direction where this is just a transitional procedure that's going to get us out of the current monopoly. It's, they're just trying to take over the monopoly on their own behalf, uh, which will further entrench it. Uh, and that's, that's not good. So there's an opportunity here, but I don't really trust the people who are being given this opportunity. Yeah. So I think we should take the remainder of our time to talk some about the, uh, the Stop Woke Act, because this is, I think, a, the most direct form of government control uh, over the content of classroom instruction that we've seen DeSantis take in, in recent years. Uh, so this is part of a, one of a whole slate of, they're sometimes called anti-CRT, anti-critical race theory laws or or divisive concept laws that have been passed by Republican legislatures in many states. Most of them are mainly focused on K-12 education, but the Stop Woke Act focuses both on K-12 education and higher education and universities. And the key provision of this act says that it constitutes discrimination to subject, this is in quotes, quote, subject any student or employee to training or instruction that espouses, promotes, advances, inculcates, or compels such student or employee to believe, end quote, any of eight concepts. And I won't go through all eight of the concepts, but here are, I'll list three of them. Uh, these, are, these are in quotes. A person's moral character or status as either privileged or oppressed is necessarily determined by his or her race color, national origin, or sex. Members of one race, color, national origin, or sex cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect to race, color, national origin, or sex. A person by virtue of his or her race, color, national origin, or sex should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment to achieve diversity, equity, or inclusion." Uh, end quote. So that last one is advocacy of affirmative action, basically. Um, so these are concepts that you are not allowed as a university professor to uh, espouse, promote, advance, inculcate, or compel in your class. And if you do, you're guilty of discrimination against your students. Uh, they are allowed, the, the act tells us, they are allowed if your, quote, training or instruction is given in an objective manner without endorsement of the concepts, end quote. Uh, so there's, uh, 
there's a list of things you're not allowed to teach unless you're doing it in an objective manner without endorsing them. Uh, now, there's been a lot of criticism of this act. Uh, several lawsuits are proceeding against it, including one with the, by the uh, uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, FIRE. Uh, and there's, in fact, a temporary injunction holding that this act actually violates the First Amendment rights of the professors whom it seeks to bind. Um, one thing to say about it, I think, should be clear from what I read, is that the law is pretty vague about what's permitted and what is not permitted. Uh, it's You're not allowed to promote these things. You're allowed to teach them in an objective context. But what what constitutes it, it promoting, promoting, espousing, advancing an idea. Can can I, as a professor, present the arguments for a certain view as a, a devil's advocate or just giving the argument for a perspective that's relevant to my class? Can a professor say what their personal opinion is in the context of presenting both sides of a debate? I think it's really not clear what is allowed and what's prohibited. And you can see there's a lot of confusion among professors really scrambling to try to figure out what of my readings can I use? What of my lectures do I have to rewrite? Uh, and I think that there's a likelihood that this will lead to professors just avoiding these topics altogether, uh, which in some cases is definitely a bad thing. Like if you have a history class where the professor, it's, it's, it's a history of slavery in America, like and the professor has to avoid talking about race and like racial oppression. That's not not and not promoting the value of education. Uh, so coming back to this, there have been lawsuits that allege that this violates uh, the professor's First Amendment rights, and there's an injunction that agrees that this has. Uh, ben, I wanted to ask you, what do you think? Does this kind of law violate the free speech rights of the university professors? I'm not sure, but I think there's at least a case that you could make for it, and that's because Professors are paid to educate. And for the reason that you mentioned, education often involves taking positions, if only in the capacity of devil's advocate, but, but often because they want to argue for a position and then see what their students think. And then students are given the opportunity to critique. And that's what part of a real education involves. And so to the extent that it's government that's deciding what ideas can be taught. And the Stop Woke Act says various other views apart from DEI can be advocated, uh, various forms of patriotic education, for instance. Then that's government deciding which ideas get sponsored and which ones don't. And that's particularly salient in a situation where more and more of higher education is controlled in one way or another or funded in one way or another by government. If you, got, if, you, if you get a situation where, in effect, all of the schools are, are paid for by the government and all the professors are funded that way, and then the government gets to decide which ideas get taught, well, that means there are some professors who simply don't get to work uh, and uh, are kicked out of their way of making a living, which is by educating. But if you don't buy that, if you don't buy that that's a real form of violation of free speech rights of professors, then how about this? Well, the reason why you might be skeptical is, yeah, well, what about the taxpayers who are being forced to support the ideas that the uh, professor is, is, is preaching? That's a violation of their free speech, isn't it? Well, yes, it is, for sure, for the reasons that we've already talked about. That's one of the reasons why there's something wrong with public education. And there's no fairness doctrine which will ever make it totally fair because there's always going to be somebody's uh, 
somebody's uh, taxpayer money that's being expropriated. But then think about it this way. Um, if it's wrong to use taxpayer money to promote DEI because some people in the public oppose DEI, well then buy this. And, and if you see that that's a free speech violation of the taxpayers, then by the same token, uh, if you if you fund a public education system that is opposed to DEI or that's, that simply does not discuss DEI, by the same token, that violates the free speech rights of the taxpayers who support DEI. You can't, you don't get to say some taxpayers uh, get to have their money expropriated uh, for certain purposes and some don't. So at the very least, there's a free speech issue here uh, for people who support DEI, if DEI is being censored in the academy by government edict. So one way or another, I think there's definitely a free speech issue here. And there's serious problems with uh, this anti-woke act. And uh, I don't know if I agree with the particular reasons that were given for the judge who put an injunction against these elements of it, but I, I definitely think there's something that a judge should rule against. And that relates to a, another passage that we wanted to share from Ayn Rand's essay, Fairness Doctrine for Education. Now, she wrote this in the early 70s, and uh, the woke egalitarianism that we're concerned about taking over the academy was not as much of a thing then. But certainly, she had on her radar communism. And you, you know, of course, that if the entire academy had been run by communists, she would have said, well, this is prime case where a fairness doctrine is needed. You need to have some kind of balance against that communist influence. But look at what else she had to say on the subject of what happens if you're trying to run universities according to this kind of fairness doctrine. She, she wrote in the same essay, if there are universities somewhere that bar the teaching of overtly vicious theories, such as communism, the advocates of these theories would be entitled to the protection of the fairness doctrine so long as the university received government funds, because there are tax-paying citizens who are communists. The protection would apply to the right to teach ideas, not to criminal actions such as campus riots or any form of physical violence. So she's saying, look, if you're going to have a fairness doctrine, uh, even if there are vicious ideas that are, some professors are teaching, you can't exclude them from the academy either for the very reason that there are people paying for their salary who actually support these ideas. And you may not like that. You may disagree with those ideas. But as long as there's a, public, a system of public education where people's taxpayer money is being expropriated, you have to support, you can't privilege one view against the other. Otherwise, it results in somebody's violation of rights. I think it's also worth noting uh, briefly that Ayn Rand's proposal was to have universities hire advocates of alternative views. So if you have a department that's full of a bunch of communists, you should hire someone who advocates capitalism. Not that you should try to make those communists stop arguing for communism and start arguing for capitalism. That, that That's not the way to have an effective education. And she's she's clear that that's not what she's proposing. All right, Ben, do you have any final yeah. uh, final thoughts on this? Yeah, I just, there's more that we could discuss about this and, and I wish we had more time. But one last thing to point out is uh, if you read this essay and we're gonna give you information soon on where to find it, uh, Fairness Doctrine and Education, she also suggests that the way to implement this Fairness Doctrine is not through the mechanism that it's currently being implemented by someone like DeSantis. It's, she says specifically, we shouldn't do it through the executive branch of the government, that it should be done through the courts. So private citizens 
should basically file lawsuits on the grounds that their rights are being violated by uh, this system. That's not what's happening right now. In instead, it's being done by executive decree. Now, admittedly, it's being done seemingly with the approval of the voters. But I think that what she's worried about is that when it's done by executive decree, when a, when a governor has the power to set up a whole bureaucracy, that that further entrenches uh, the system rather than challenging it. And so I think there's a good case to be made here for th this is not even the right angle of political reform, that it should be done through the courts, that there it's the, it's the private citizens who are taking the initiative. The courts decide there's something wrong with the system. They leave it up to the professors then to figure out a way to make their system compliant with the law. Uh, and so the agency then is there still with the professors. Um, as a whole, I think leftist control of higher education is, is pushing us toward collectivism in this country. And so there's a real need to reform higher education, eventually to get rid of it. Uh, and there's an opportunity to do that right now. What worries me is that today's conservative right is going to spoil this opportunity and just push us further in the direction of its own variety of collectivism, entrenching its own monopoly over the system. Uh, and then when they lose power, there will be a backlash by the left and a further entrenchment that, uh, of its institutions. What we need is an effort to think clearly about what it will take to end this monopoly and what transitional methods will make that more likely rather than less likely what I fear is that the methods being used right now by DeSantis in Florida are, are simply going to make it less likely, that, that uh, nobody is actually thinking about how to get rid of public education. And that's, it's notable uh, when you, you don't hear them talking about it. You don't hear them saying, we're doing this because we want to end the government monopoly on education. They're simply talking about getting their guys into power. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so. Let's take just a second to talk about some resources that you might want to look at to learn more about this topic. Of course, we've talked a lot about Ayn Rand's essay, Fairness Doctrine for Education. That's in her book, Philosophy, Who Needs It? Uh, and so you can, uh, you can read it there. We have a link to where you can read more about that book at bit.ly slash phil, P-H-I-L, who needs it? Um, also, uh, I did a podcast a few months ago with Ankar Gatte uh, called Political Battles Over Education, where we talked about some of the political controversies that are going on in K-12 education. So it's a related issue, different uh, age of, of education. Uh, so you might find that interesting. You can find that at bit.ly slash education battles. I also want to mention uh, the topic for next week's podcast. Uh, which will also be on Friday. It'll be Friday, February 24th. The topic will be the European response to the Ukraine war. Uh, the presenters for that will be Nikos Soutirokopoulos and Zimowit Gowan. Uh, so uh, tune in for that. Um, please uh, email us and send in your questions and your, uh, your topics, ideas that you're interested in hearing us talk about in the future. Uh, we read your emails that you send to us. We reply to many, and many of them uh, become the basis or become questions that we discuss in, in episodes. That email address is newideal at einrand.org. Uh, finally, if, if, you agree, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, and uh, you can click the bell to receive notifications. 
uh, that will tell you when we go live or when we post uh, new recordings or videos. Um, and if you're watching this and you're enjoying it, please like, uh, comment, and uh, share the episode. It will help us uh, attract new viewers to the channel and do the same uh, on other social media platforms as well. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you, Ben, for discussing this with me. Um, that's all I have. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.